Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I can never uh, quite express what kind of scientist I actually am, but I don't think I'm a stem cell biologist, and I'm honored to be giving a talk at this meeting. But all I do is apply stem cells. And as uh, as already noted, uh, Marius is my collaborator with the two stem cell biologists. I am a neuroscientist who finds stem cell approaches incredibly useful. So what I'm going to talk to you about today is one particular project, a project that deals with these Fundamental cell biology underlying genes in which changes predispose to Alzheimer's disease. But before I start, let me list my disclosures. I consult for a number of companies in various capacities. Nothing I will talk about today relates to my consulting work, directly or indirectly. So what I'm going to talk to you about today is outlined here I will first give a brief introduction, very brief indeed, and then I will talk on our studies on the cell biology of APOE, followed by some more recent results on APP. This talk will focus on facets of the fundamental cell biology and will not be a directly translational talk. There is no claim to solve any disease-related question. I'm trying to say this from the very outset because I feel that very often in our field, people jump to conclusions about applications that maybe are sometimes necessary to get stuff published, but are not really always uh, germane. So let me start with the beginning. The introduction, as you all know, APOE4 is one of three isoforms of a normally in blood circulating apolipoprotein, 2, 3, and 4, and is the most important genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. What you see here is a incident rates of AD at the age of 85 related to the APOE genotype. And you can see that if you have a double APOE4, it is a whammy. It is more than 50% of people. This has an enormous effect size because the APOE allele, APOE4 allele is not rare in the population. So APOE has a central place in the overall genetics of AD. In fact, when you look at this extremely abbreviated overview of the genetic landscape of Alzheimer's disease, it is remarkable that on the one extreme, you have these point mutations in two sets of genes, APP and presenilins, that have huge effect sizes. They're basically 100% penetrant, but they are luckily extremely rare. Then you have the APOE variants. They're very common and have very large effect sizes. And finally, you have much less common lower effect size GWAS hits, of which the term 2 hit is probably the most important, which is a microglial protein, and which is also very important in predicting the risk 
for Alzheimer's disease. In fact, this last bin has been the recent focus of much research that has led uh, to a, a concentration of microglial biology, which has been very, very productive scientifically, but has yet led, has not yet led to um, therapeutic advances. On the other hand, as you may have heard, the most recent Biogen ESI clinical trial on A-beta antibodies has shown that there may be a large effect size after all, still have to see the data, and this may change things again towards A-beta. The bottom line here is that although in AD, most science and drug discovery is currently focused on A-beta as the toxic agent, especially based on these recent clinical trial data, and on microglia as an anti-A-beta agent that sort of gobbles up the A-beta, the biology of AD and its relation to APOE, APP, and other risk factors is likely more complex. This is not just a disease, I think. And I hope to convince you that is based on an interplay between toxic ambida and microglia that is the valiant soldier that fights against the ambida. Instead, I think this is a long-term chronic disorder that in the end is based on an imbalance of the cell biology, but we'll talk about this later. So much for the introduction. Let me now turn to this project in which the starting point was that Neurons express a lot of different APOE receptors, more than 10. Most of these APOE receptors bind APOE with high affinity, APOE 2, 3, and 4. But they also bind other factors, and they often serve in developmental signaling, for example, as co-receptors for wind, agrin, and relin. So the hypothesis is that APOE, via binding to these receptors, is not only a lipid transport protein, as it has been shown abundantly for this blood ApoE species, but is also a signaling molecule. And so the starting point, the goal of this project was to test the effect of ApoE on neurons and see if it might be a signaling molecule. And the system that we are using is a system that we developed in my lab with so a collaboration with Marius Wernick's lab, where we convert stem cells, ES or IPS cells, into neurons via a very rapid protocol that involves the forced expression of a transcription factor, in this case, NGN2, although other transcription factors will also work and will give you slightly different neurons. And what you see here at the bottom is that this procedure causes a very rapid transformation, transdifferentiation of the stem cells into neurons. You can see in this slide here that illustrates the synaptic responses in these developing neurons that already after two weeks, there are amper receptor-mediated EPSCs as shown in the middle that saturates after about three to four weeks. And when you look at the EPSC amplitude at the right side, you can see that it increases as a function of the time in culture. And to look at this more closely, what you can see here on top is the development of these intrinsic membrane properties. The capacitance goes up as these neurons are in culture and continues to go up. 
Input resistance goes down, as shown in the middle, and the membrane potential becomes more and more negative, although it never quite reaches the membrane potential we see in situ in neurons. It at least begins to approach that membrane potential after about two months in culture. Moreover, action potentials are generated, as you can see here, as a function of time in a manner that after three to four weeks, action potentials look quite normal. And finally, I already showed you the synaptic properties. So this technology allows rapid production of large amounts of functional human neurons with highly reproducible properties, and most importantly, with actual synaptic development that enables studies of the cell biology of synapses, their synaptic transmission, short-term plasticity, homeostatic plasticity, events that are very important for the functioning of the brain. This system is obviously useful for studying synaptic dysfunction because the neurons are relatively more mature than what you observe in organoids. But it is not suitable for some other goals that we as neuroscientists might have, such as studying early brain development or formation of a three-dimensional cytoarchitecture. This is a purely two-dimensional system that is suitable for cell biology, but not for more complex questions, for example, regarding the human brain. Using this technology, we asked a simple question. What happens if you add APOE to human neurons in the absence of glia or of serum? Sorry, this is a typo. Um, so the experiments that we did then is we cultured these neurons in the absence of serum and, or of glia, and then we added as you can see here, different APOEs at the same concentration. The APOEs are produced in the supernatant of transfected hex cells. And what you can see here is that there was an activation of the MAP kinase pathway that was most robust for APOE4 and least for APOE2. This induction of the, of the MAP kinase pathways, as you can see down here, was blocked by a protein called RAP, which is a universal inhibitor of all APOE binding to its receptors. So it was dependent on APOE binding to receptors. It was also naturally inhibited by inhibitors of MAP kinases, as shown here with PD98059 or U0126, which not only inhibit the activation, but also the baseline activity of MAP kinases. And finally, it was not inhibited by inhibitors of other types of kinase uh, cascades. So in other words, APOE stimulated some kind of signal transduction in a manner that differed between the various three APOE isoforms. A lot of subsequent biochemistry that I'm not going to review with you because it's been published defined an APOE-activated signaling pathway that started with the induction of DLK, a MAP kinase kinase kinase. And this signaling pathway is outlined here. APOE4 more stronger than APOE3, stronger than APOE2, binds to its receptors, which then leads to a stabilization of DLK and protects it from proteasomal degradation. And DLK then 
phosphorylates MKK7, which then phosphorylates ERK and MAP kinases, leading to effectors. This remarkable pathway is unique in that MKK was not previously implicated in neuronal signaling, but we confirmed this with a number of deletions and additions to make sure that this actually exists. Now, after we published this finding five years ago, a lot of papers raised concern about its reproducibility and its physiological significance. One concern was that ApoE was produced in HEC-293 cells and may not have been lipidated. However, none of these studies that raised concerns actually used the same system that we used, but rather used mixed cultures that had endogenous lipids, endogenous ApoE, and endogenous factors that could have um, basically occluded any effects. Nevertheless, we took this concern that non-lipidated ApoE produced in hex cells and bacteria may not be the, may basically produce artifacts very seriously as we did. The suggestion that ApoE may generally activate other kinase pathways, which I think is an obvious, very plausible suggestion. So we try to address these questions and to do the, address the first question we tested ApoE derived from sources that normally produce it, i.e. native ApoE. What we did is we generated ApoE that's produced in mouse astrocytes. Mouse astrocytes, as human astrocytes, normally produce significant levels of ApoE and secrete it as lipidated particles, although not as the same lipoproteins that are normally circulating in blood. In fact, nobody really knows what lipidated ApoE in brain does, whether it's really a lipid transport protein or not. So we used glia from ApoE conditional knockout mice that we infected with lentiviruses expressing uh, either CRE or delta CRE as a control with and without ApoE 2, 3, and 4 expression vectors. We then used the conditioned medium from these cells and we added them to human neurons that are cultured in the absence of glia or serum, obviously, because serum contains ApoE. And what you can see here is that if you do this experiment, the delta CRE itself has little effect compared to the hex cell produced ApoE3. The control, as you can see here, is completely empty in terms of stimulation of ERK. When you add to the ApoE, to the culture medium from ApoE knockout astrocytes, a control supernatant created from hex cells transfected with EGFP. There's nothing. However, ApoE 2, 3, and 4, all three stimulate the production of, stimulate the phosphorylation of ERK, the central MAC kinase, and the levels of ERK itself, as shown here, don't change. So this experiment confirms that ApoE produced by astrocytes, mouse astrocytes, is fully capable of stimulating the ERK phosphorylation pathway. We next tested whether native human ApoE purified with lipoprotein particles from human blood, which have a different type of lipoprotein particles, could do the same. So we obtained human blood LDL, as shown here, then we basically stim we added this to the human neurons, 
either human LDL as shown here or hexal produced ApoE3. And as you can easily see, the human LDL was able to stimulate ERK phosphorylation in the human neurons. So this concludes this control experiments demonstrating that lipidated APOE is just as capable as non-lipidated APOE to stimulate this phosphorylation of ERK, of the ERK pathway, suggesting that it's truly the receptor binding and not the lipids that are actually active in here. And that the receptor binding, just like binding of other factors to the APOE receptor, stimulates some kind of signaling. And this leads us to the next question then, what are the other pathways that might be stimulated by this binding? And in order to test that second question, we screen for a few selected pathways. And as you can see here in this experiment, what we find is that APOE addition with neurons cultured either in the presence of MEFs or in the absence of any other cells, no neuglia, no serum, of course, leads to not only a stimulation of phosphorylation of ERK map kinases, but also of ACT kinases, a completely different pathway, and even of SARC kinase, as you can see here, but not of junk. So clearly, there is indeed stimulation of multiple signaling pathways. There's no specificity for MAP kinases here. Indeed, what APOE seems to do is stimulate a large number of pathways in the cell via binding to its receptors. Moreover, APOE stimulates phosphorylation of downstream target transcription factors. What you see here is phosphorylation of PREB, which is a which is a transcription factor. As you all know, that uh, is highly regulated by various kinases. And you can see that in the absence of RAP as an inhibitor of APOE proteins. On top, there's, there's massive stimulation of CRAB phosphorylation that's completely blocked by the inhibition of RAP kinase of, of uh, APOE receptors by RAP. Moreover, the specificity of the APOE3-induced CRAB phosphorylation is illustrated in the bottom in that it is specifically inhibited by a MAP kinase inhibitor, U0126, but not by inhibitors of other kinases, as shown here. So the bottom line of all these experiments, then, is that in the absence of either glia, which produce all kinds of factors, not just APOE, or serum, which contains APOE, APOE causes activation of multiple signaling pathways. Now, these are highly artificial conditions in which the neurons are really isolated from other normally surrounding media and cells to sort of reduction in a reductionist manner, pull out one particular effect, namely a general stimulation of signaling that you would otherwise not see if you have all these other factors around. And we wondered, what could we actually learn from this in terms of effector targets? How might this actually be embedded in a larger context, in, in what the neurons do. And this leads me to the next section of my talk, namely that FPE variants differentially boost APP synthesis and synapse formation. And the starting point here is that Alzheimer's disease involves 
not only a beta. So what you see here is an experiment where we did it in the exact same conditions that I described before, but in the presence of MEFs, murine embryonic fibroblasts. The same type of experiment, but instead of measuring now MAP kinase activation or kinase activation of other pathways, we are measuring here the levels of APP protein as well as in the bottom APP mRNAs. And you can see that in a APOE receptor dependent manner, there is a significant stimulation of APP protein levels that is blocked by RAP. This is mediated by transcriptional activation because there is a significant increase in APP mRNA that again is blocked by RAP. What you can also see that it's not blocked by Wartmanin, but is blocked by the MAP kinase inhibitor U0126. This is specific for APP because APLP1 and APLP2 mRNAs, which are genes that are highly homologous to APP, are not stimulated under these conditions. Moreover, APOE also increases A-beta levels, which is not shown here. And these studies were, again, remember, performed in the absence of glia on immature neurons. These are not studies on mature neurons in a normally con containing uh, environment. So what is the relation of this to synapses and specifically to early synapse development? So in order to test this, we looked at the synapses using the measurements of puncta that are positive for synapsin, which is a synaptic vesicle protein that is a marker of all kinds of synapses. And you can see here again, in neurons cultured on MEFs, there is a massive reduction in the development of synapses compared to neurons cultured in, on glia that is shown here as a black bar. When you then add to these neurons cultured on MEFs, the various APOE variants, you get a stimulation of this synapse formation that never reaches the controls. It's always less than what you see on glia because glia produces a number of natural factors that accelerate synapse formation. This process is completely blocked again, as shown on the right, by RAP which blocks APOE binding to its receptors. And there was no effect of the APOE treatments under these conditions on other morphological properties of neurons. And as I already mentioned, RAP is the blocker of APOE binding to APOE receptors. So the APOE-induced synapses under these conditions and these very immature neurons are functional because they boost the APSC amplitude that can be elicited Electro, measured electrophysiologically, and they increase the MEPSC frequency, which is rather low under these conditions, even on, at high-density cultures, and this boost is significant, but it is not very big. So what happens in this paradigm if we directly stimulate downstream effector pathways? Remember that I introduced the MAP kinase signaling pathway to you earlier, which postulated that APOE binding works via stabilizing DLK, which then in turn activates MKK7 and then goes via CREB. And so we wondered whether we could obtain evidence 
that what happens here is a stimulation of these downstream pathways and that is really the downstream pathways that actually increase synapse density and synaptic transmission, synaptic connectivity. And so what we did here in this experiment is that we expressed in these neurons, which are now cultured under normal conditions with glia and serum and everything, we expressed in them either MBIP that blocks all DLK signaling or MKK7 that is downstream of MKK7 of DLK signaling or a combination of the two. And when you do this and you measure the synaptic puncture, you can see that MBIP that inhibits DLK lowers the synapse density, whereas MKK7 enhances it. And if you block the upstream DLK, it doesn't really matter. MKK7 activation in itself is sufficient to enhance synapse density. And these synapses are functional because if you look at MEPSC frequency, you see exactly the same pattern. That is, you can see that there is a massive increase with MKK7 of the MEPSC frequency that is, and that MBIP again blocks or decreases the frequency by itself, but has no effect if the downstream MKK7 is activated. There is very little effect, if any, on the MEPSC amplitude. So this suggests or shows that MKK7 is directly involved in regulating synapse numbers in these human neurons. And since MKK7 is downstream in the MAP kinase pathway of DLK and of APOE, we wondered whether a further downstream factor, namely CREB, as I illustrated to you earlier, may also do the same thing because CREB, as you know, is highly implicated in learning and memory. And what you see here is an experiment where we overexpressed either CREB dominant negative or dominant positive proteins in human neurons, again, mature neurons cultured on glia with serum because we are now looking at effects that override the normal signaling. And what you can see here, especially in the graph shown on the right is that there is a dramatic change in puncture density. The dominant negative crab doesn't do much. It's not significant, although it is significant in the synapse and positive puncture on the left. But as you can see here, the dominant positive crab has a massive effect on synapse density. And this is reflected in the frequency of the MEPSCs, which show the same pattern, and even the amplitude shows a trend that is significant, but not as big in terms of the effect size. So what I've tried to tell you up to this point is that APOE 2, 3, and 4 binding to APOE receptors differentially stimulates multiple signaling pathways. This correlates both with the relative binding strength of APOE4 over APOE3 over APOE2 to its receptors, and obviously, as you know, with the effect of these genes on Alzheimer's disease. The APOE stimulation of MAP kinases in the mature neurons induces APP synthesis and synaptogenesis as measured in very artificial reductionist circumstances where we have no glia and no serum. 
So it's an isolated human neurons. And direct activation of the same MAP kinase pathway also promotes synaptogenesis in conditions where they are in a more natural environment containing glia and serum. So the overall question then arises, how might this be related to AD, if at all? And the correlation of APOE genotypes with effect sizes is striking. But it displeases everyone in the field, obviously. And that's why we've gotten a lot of pushback, because APOE in itself is clearly a neurodegeneration-promoting protein, not only in humans, even in mice. It is a protein that clearly enhances neurodegeneration. It's bad for you, just like a beta. So how on earth can we actually justify having a prosynaptogenic effect in our experiments, a stimulatory effect, if it is, in, in, if it is clearly a protein that's bad for you, that destroys its neurons? And just to review this data, I want to show you two slides of some old data that we published about 15 years ago and that were since then often replicated. And in these experiments, we tested the effect of an APOE knockout in mice on the neurodegeneration induced by overexpression of A30P mutant human alpha-synuclein, which is known to cause Parkinson's disease and dementia in human patients. And what you can see here in these two graphs is that both the onset of the neurodegeneration shown on the left and the overall survival of the mice shown on the right was massively influenced by APOE. In the wild-type APOE, the mice had a much faster onset of the disease and they've survived much less, much shorter than if you just knocked out APOE. And this experiment, to the best of my knowledge, was actually the first experiment to demonstrate in the literature that APOE promotes neurodegeneration. So clearly, what I'm trying to tell you here is that APOE is not just a pro-signaling factor. It's more complicated, complex, like all biology. And the way APOE works in these particular mice is illustrated here, where it's shown that APOE promotes the aggregation of alpha-synuclein into insoluble aggregates that are now very well characterized even to the point of a structural definition. And this was shown here by simple biochemical fractionation into soluble protein on the left, SDS-soluble, and SDS insoluble proteins shown on the right, clearly demonstrating that APOE has a significant effect on the rate with which alpha synuclein aggregates. Moreover, we showed in the same study that there's actually a relation to the endogenous A beta that is produced in these mice. What you can see here in this experiment is that when you measure a beta using two different antibodies that are commercially obtained as shown in this graph, when you measure that by immunocytochemistry, you find that the a beta production is much lowered in this particular mice, endogenous mouse a beta, by the absence of a APOE. 
demonstrating again that even for ApoE, there is an effect on a beta. And this can also be measured with ELISAs as shown down here, getting to the point that in these mice which have severe neurodegeneration, there's an accumulation of insoluble aggregates of alpha-synuclein, a beta, and possibly other proteins, probably TMEM106B, as we now know, and that these protein aggregates are enhanced by the presence of APOE, the endogenous mouse APOE, not inhibited. So the bottom line is that in culture, APOE activates multiple neuronal signaling pathways, which, among others, stimulate synapse formation. And that this process, obviously, in a complex situation where you have glia that secretes not only APOE, but many other factors as well, and where you have serum that contains APOE, is occluded. Signaling is stimulated by APOE isoforms in an APOE 4 to 3 to 2 potency rank order. Among these pathways is a non-canonical map kinase pathway that in mice also stimulates synapse formation, not only in human neurons, suggesting that at least that map kinase pathway is physiologically operating, even though our experiments do not allow to tell us whether this APOE signaling pathway that we defined in very reductionist circumstances is operating in the face of a large number of additional factors. And finally, in mice, deletion of endogenous APOE protects against neurodegeneration, which has since been expanded on by the Holzman lab and many others using NOC and human APOE 2, 3, 4, and other things. So given the paradoxical prosynapse and pro-neurodegenerative effects of APOE 4, do other AD risk genes also influence directly or indirectly synapses in human neurons? And that is the question I will try to address to you in the fourth part of my talk today, which will discuss a completely different AD risk factor, namely APP mutations that cause familial Alzheimer's disease in addition APP, as you know, is a GWAS hit for Alzheimer's disease. But in the familial mutations, the, the incident, the penetrance is 100%. And so the hypothesis here is that APP is linked to synapses, which may be relevant for Alzheimer's disease. And we wanted to test the effects of APP mutations on neurons, especially in view of the effects that we had seen with the APOE signaling pathway that I just described to you. The approach we took here is illustrated on this slide here. We made a conditional APP Swedish knock-in mutation. Sorry for the misspelling. This is not an AAP, that's an APP Swedish knock-in mutation. And what we did here is, and I think I don't think this has been done before, is to create a conditional point mutation. In this way, we can, depending on what recombinates we use, create from a hypermorph allele either a heterozygous mutant allele or a wild-type allele that would make them the, the cells homozygous wild-type. And this allows us complete control of the genotype. 
because these mutations or the conversion to wild type are only introduced after the neurons are being generated. And when we measure APP levels in the wild type versus the Swedish heterozygous neurons generated this way, they are unchanged. But a beta levels, as you see here at the bottom, are increased appropriately, as expected. It's been shown a million times. So why go to the trouble of conditional mutations if we just get what other people have shown before? Because we believe that it is preferable to have a perfect control of the genetic of the genetic background. And the reason for that is illustrated, for example, in this slide, which was taken from a paper published in Neuron, in which the authors, to their credit, really beautifully showed that clonal variation in iPS cells and iPS cell-derived neurons can be quite large. What you see here is that this paper here was about this difference shown here, the relative neuronal L1 content. And as you can see here in schizophrenia, average neurons, it was much higher, significantly higher. But these authors had in the study two different patients with iPS cell lines that were then analyzed, and they had two clones from each patient. And the two clones, as you can see here, had vastly different properties. And this illustrates just as an example that I think we all know that clonal variation in cell lines derived from the same parental line can be quite big. And thus these clocks, if you clone, if you propagate a line that you mutate or whatever, it is not isogenic. It is changed often. You need to do a lot of lines in order to be able to be reasonably confident that the genetic change reflects the genetic change. The genetic change induces changes that actually are due to the genetic change. So this is why we prefer conditional mutations, although I think if you have a number of independent clones that give you the same results with a non-isogenic line, that's just fine. So using this conditional approach then, we measured first of all the effect of the APP Swedish heterozygous mutation on dendrites. And we found very little effect. There was one small effect on the primary dendrites numbers, but otherwise it was fine. However, we did find a significant effect on the size of endosomes, as shown here in D. And this effect was not novel. It has previously been demonstrated in pioneering studies from the Tessier-Lavine lab using also human neurons, showing that a heterozygous mutation, Swedish APP Swedish mutation, can actually enlarge endosomes. But what had not previously been done is looked at synapses in these neurons. So that's what we did. And when we did this, we've got a very unexpected observation. And that is summarized here in the synapse puncta density. And this density is measured by the coincidence of, of synapsin staining puncta on dendrites. And this is illustrated in the top. And you can see that four independent lines of conditionally mutant APP, Swedish neurons, completely independent lines, all conditional, 
EPS cell derived, IPS cell derived have exactly the same phenotype, namely an increase in synapse density. And they also have an increase in PSD95 puncture density as a postsynaptic marker, so not only a presynaptic marker. Moreover, this increase in synapse density is functional because when you look at MEPSC frequency, you can see that it is significantly enhanced in the APP Swedish mutation, as shown here for two independent clones where we measured MEPSC frequency, whereas the MEPSC amplitude shows only a minor change. So this was a big surprise. It was surprising because it suggested that you get more synapses and that these synapses are functional. To further nail this, we measured evoked responses, again in two different clones. And as you can see here, the conditional mutations, again, caused an increase in the APSC amplitude. Now, mind you, these effects are not big. These are small effects. They're 20, 30%, 40% effects maximum in terms of the function, a little bit higher in terms of the density. They would be easily missed in the noise if you didn't have conditional mutations. And this is very counterintuitive because a mutation that causes familial Alzheimer's disease is not supposed to be positive for synapses. If anything, it's supposed to destroy synapses, but it parallels what I showed you about the APOE effect. The effect sizes are small. I already emphasized this. These, however, are mature neurons on glia culture in the presence of serum. So these are less reductionist conditions than what I showed you for the APOE4. And note that these experiments, as I tried to emphasize already, are rigorously controlled. They were performed as conditional mutations in multiple lines of ES or IPS cells. So we wonder, does the effect of the APP Swedish mutation depend on base one cleavage of APP? And what does APP cleavage of by base one actually do? And so we used the biochemical, a pharmacological base one inhibitor to test this question. And what you see here is that if you measure the puncture density as a function of the base one inhibitor, you can see that under wild type conditions, the base one inhibitor suppresses synapse numbers, that the Swedish mutation again causes a significant increase in synapse numbers, and that this increase is totally blocked with the base one inhibitor. So the base one inhibitor completely blocks the APP Swedish mutation's effect on the increase in synapse density. And this is also shown for an independent IPS cell-derived clone of a conditional APP Swedish mutation on the right. So APP is upstream of an APP proteolysis product. And this, as you know, product is C99, which then in turn leads to the production of AICD and A-beta. And base one inhibition impairs synapses, at least in part, by blocking cleavage of APP. What about synaptic function correlate? Not surprisingly, from all I've told you, there's a perfect correlate. MEPSC frequency is increased, as I showed you before. There's a Swedish mutation. This is blocked, as you see here, in two independent clones with conditionally induced Swedish mutations by the base one inhibitor. So this suggests indeed that there's a pathway whereby APP cleavage by base one 
is required for the APP-dependent enhancement of synapses. Does this imply a function for APP and synapses? Do synapses and human neurons actually have a, uh, some kind of regulation by APP? Now, this is a long, it's a question of a long history. There's millions of papers in mice that have tried to address this question, but I'm not assured that it has ever been tested before in human neurons. So we generated another cell line, set of cell lines that now contain a conditionally mutant APP gene, which knocks it out. Instead of creating an APP Swedish conditional mutation, now it's a knockout. It's a loss of function. And this is illustrated here, and you can there, that there's a loss uh, or nearly complete loss of IBDA production, as you would expect. And you can see here that gratifyingly, now in the absence of APP, you can see a decrease in endosome size, suggesting that the APP Swedish mutation is indeed a gain of function mutation, whereas the APP knockout is obviously a loss of function mutation, leading to a corresponding decrease in endosome size. What about synapses? Well, not surprisingly, what you can see here is now we see a loss of synapse, synapses measured in two clones as synapse density and as both measured with synapsin and with PST95. Moreover, functionally, there's a decrease in EPSC ampl MEPSC amplitude, a frequency, sorry, but not in the amplitude. And in two independent clones, there is a actually quite robust decrease in the evoked EPSC amplitude. Thus, in human neurons, deletion of APP produces the mirror image phenotype of the APP Swedish mutation. Quite a substantial decrease in synapse numbers and synaptic function, synaptic connectivity. And this is also related to an endosome size decrease, suggesting a general change in how synapses are made in the APP with the APP deletion. Now, as an aside, that doesn't mean that APP is involved in synapse formation directly. This could also reflect a function of APP upstream of synapse formation that either promotes or slows down synapse formation, whereas indicated by this change in endosome size. This is another question that I'm not going to discuss today. So what this illustrates is the possibility that an APP derivative might actually promote synapse formation in, in tumor neurons, and that this is inhibited if you actually decrease this APP derivative. And to gain more direct evidence for this hypothesis and furthermore to get hints as to what kinds of derivative might be involved. We did a couple more experiments and I'm only going to show you one today because I'm running out of time in which we transfected hex cells with a variety of APP constructs that are illustrated here and that produce either only a beta, only a, a soluble APP beta, or full-length APP, or the C99 fragment that in turn is cleaved by gamma secretase to a beta and ICD. We then took the conditioned medium from these hex cells 
and added it to cultured human neurons under otherwise normal conditions. And we took cultured human neurons that are either from wild-type neural cells or that were converted into APP knockout neurons. What you can see here is that the total A-beta in the hexal supernatants is increased, as you would expect. But when you add it to the medium, we add it to a medium that reflects a normal physiological concentration of A-beta, not an increased concentration of A-beta. So we added only a little bit of A-beta. This is important because we didn't want to test the toxicity of A-beta that is normally tested with much larger concentrations and that in other experiments we have confirmed, not surprisingly, to exist. Now, when we add these lower concentrations of A-beta that are produced together with other factors in the supernatant of hex cells, you can see that if we uh, use the supernatant from full-length APP transfected hex cells and C99 transfected hex cells, but not from SAPP beta transfected hex cells, there was an increase in wild-type neurons of synapse density. When we knock out APP, there was a decrease in synapse density, as I already showed you before, due to the knockout, but the supernatant still had the same effect as in the wild type. And as you can see at the bottom, the mini EPSC frequency is also changed in exactly the same way. In the wild type neurons, you can see that there is this highly significant increase in MEPSC frequency only with supernatant from C99 and full length APP, but not with supernatant from cell, hex cells transfected with SAPP beta. And the same thing is observed in APP knockout cells, showing that APP itself is not the transducer, but that an APP product that is secreted into the medium is doing the effect. And it's obvious to think of it as a, a beta because that's the only thing that's secreted from C99. There is no other extracellular component. I'm not going to go through this. So what I've tried to tell you here then, that APP Swedish mutation, again, somewhat unexpectedly, again, in a way that will cause probably some a lot of questions, maybe some pushback, promotes synapse formation. And that this effect is mediated by the secretion most likely of A-beta from APP. So what I've tried you in my presentation today, what I've tried to convince you of in my presentation today is that APOE2, 3, and 4 binding to APOE receptors differentially stimulates multiple signaling pathways. They activate all kinds of receptors that we haven't identified among the many that are expressed, and that these different isoforms have differential efficacy. But you can only see this if you remove the endogenous APOE, if you remove the all the APOE that's in the serum. Otherwise, this is not visible, obviously, because you already have signal. APOE stimulation of MAP kinases induces crap phosphorylation, APP synthesis, and synapse formation that can be reproduced by direct activation of the MAP kinase pathway or CREP using overexpression of active forms. The APP Swedish mutation enhances formation of functionally active synapses, whereas the APP deletion suppresses synapse formation in human neurons using 
highly controlled conditional mutations that are only activated as mutations in the neurons after the neurons, after cells no longer undergo endomitosis, controlling for potential clonal effect. And this suggests a possible signaling pathway whereby APOE receptors activate multiple signaling cascades that leads to transcriptional activation, changes in endosomes, probably other processes that eventually also affect synapses by either a direct or indirect effect. We favor an indirect effect because to us, the endosome change suggests that APP is not involved in synapses directly, but indirectly by regulating membrane trafficking of some sort or another that also affect endosomes. Now, the biggest question here for others, and also for us, actually, is how this relates to Alzheimer's disease. And in a standard presentation, one is now supposed to propose some kind of conclusion of that basically has some uh, direct words about how this might condition to Alzheimer's disease. And I have to confess to you all, I have no idea. I think that this is basic cell biology. These are robust effects, especially in terms of the conditional mutations. But how we can sort of reconcile an increase, a short-term increase, with these various AD-linked genetic changes in synapse, synaptic connectivity with a chronic effect of the same changes as I also illustrated to you with the apoe deletion in mice or neurodegeneration that is absolutely devastating for the patients. I can't explain at this point. And I'm not sure that the system that we are using is necessarily the best system to address this because of the nature of human neurons and culture with all their problems. They're great for cell biology, but they may not be the best to analyze the effects of chronic changes and mice are certainly a better system there. Nevertheless, I can't help thinking that in the end, what we have looking at, been looking at are general conditions that are quite physiological. And that these cell biological changes we observe might be relevant for and translate into chronic effects that we cannot yet calculate or even conceptually think of, but that we clearly, I think, need to at least keep in mind. I would like to close by acknowledging, and particularly Bourjou, who did this incredible study on the conditional mutations that I discussed with you today in APP. Alvin Huang, who has now his own lab at Brown University, did the initial IPOE experiments that were then replicated by Amber Riblet, Soham, did a lot of the original work on the IN cells, together with Marius Wernick and his team, with whom we have had a wonderful collaboration on these projects over all these years. Thank you very much for listening.